Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast we are talking about a warrior queen who ruled over a people largely situated in the area around what is today Turkmenistan, just east of the Caspian Sea. Now, Tamaris, remarkable figure, we hear about her from the 5th century BC historian Herodotus. And according to Herodotus, she has an encounter, a military run-in, with the founder of the Persian Empire, the great conqueror, Cyrus the Great. But it doesn't end well for Cyrus, as you're going to find out in this podcast. Now, joining me to talk about the story of Tamaris and her legacy over the centuries, I was delighted to be joined by Dr. Christian Jerslev from Aarhus University. Christian was also formerly at the University of Edinburgh, where he was my professor. So it was great to get him on the show. It was great to catch up with him and to talk of all things Tamaris. Here's Christian. Christian, it's great to see you again. How have you been? <laughs> yeah, I've been good, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really well, thanks. I'm glad just to have you on the podcast and glad to see you again. <laughs> now, Tamaris, this is an extraordinary warrior queen of antiquity. Yes, yes, she is an extremely important character in ancient Greek and Roman literature. And she was really important for their fought world back in ancient history. And who is our main source for the story of Tamaris? Our main source of the story is Herodotus, who was active in the 5th century BC. And it's interesting you mentioned Herodotus there, because I'm just thinking of like Artemisia, the bastard Salamis. He talks quite a bit in his narrative about these extraordinary warrior queens. That's very true. He has a penchant for talking about powerful women like Artemisia. And she was, of course, the queen of Halicarnassus, Herodotus' hometown. And she's important because she fought on the Persian side in the wars that Herodotus was writing about, the Great Persian War against the Greek states. Even though she allied with the Persian king Xerxes, Herodotus recorded that her main achievement was actually to destroy some of the Persian king's ships at the naval battle of Salamis to save herself and her crew and so this is her sort of her great achievement, like Tamiris also have one great achievement in Herodotus' works. Artemisia, she is like Tamiris, a widow, but she is in other ways rather different than Tamiris. She fights for the Persian army, she is a naval commander, she is based in a town rather on the land, and so on. I should say that Herodotus also wrote about many other kinds of women, such as the Lydian baker for King Croesus, a beard-growing priestess, and a Mendian woman who was said to have sex with a goat in public. 
In fact, one scholar has counted almost 400 passages involving women, so Tamiris was definitely not alone in Herodotus. So, like Tamiris, Artemisia was a widow and she was a ruler as well. And who was Tamiris ruling over? Tamiris was ruling over a Scythian tribe, an Eastern Iranian tribe called the Massagetans. They are basically like a nomad tribe, I would say. But in Book 4 of the histories, Herodotus argues that despite what the Greeks thought about them, they were actually quite an independent tribe that Tamiris is ruling over. They're quite an interesting one because Herodotus tells us a lot about them. So, for example, we know that for war, they armed themselves as both a cavalry and infantry, and they fight as archers and as spearmen, but their customary weapon was the battle axe. And one interesting fact about them also is that Herodotus says that their armor and the horse's armor as well is made from gold and from brass, which they apparently had in abundance. They had no iron or silver. So very, very sparkly Massagetans. <laughs> yeah, very sparkly horse culture, like nomadic horse culture, Massagetans. And big question, I know it's a difficult question to ask, but do we have any general idea where the Massagetans lived in the ancient world? This is really the million-dollar question. Herodotus says that the Massagetans live on the great plains of Central Asia, east of the inland Caspian Sea. And this is somewhere in the grasslands between modern-day Turkmenistan, western Uzbekistan, and south of Kazakhstan. But then Herodotus also tells us that they live by the Araxes River, which is a completely different area, namely the modern Aras River, which flows through Turkey, through Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is west of the Caspian Sea rather than the east. So Herodotus is actually quite confused, and we're not quite sure about this. People have tried to come up with different explanations for why Herodotus says what he does. He has probably confused this Araxes River with the Oxus River or the Yaxartes River, the modern Amu Daraya or the Sur Daraya, they are they are great rivers. We know them well. They flow through Central Asia, through modern-day Kazakhstan, and through Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan to Afghanistan and Tajikistan. So probably one of these rivers rather than the Araxes River that Herodotus talked about. It's remarkable when you think that Herodotus is living in Western Asia Minor on the, on the Aegean Sea coastline. Yes. And he is talking in his histories about a people who lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to the east on these rivers on a far corner of what would be the Persian Empire. Yes, quite on the periphery. It's probably one of the most northeastern places that Herodotus remarks upon in the histories. And you mentioned she was a widow. Do we have any idea of how Tamiris becomes queen of the Massagetae or for how long she is ruling when Herodotus starts the story? Unfortunately, we don't really know what has happened before then. It's one of the first things we hear about is that she's a widow and presumably she is ruling through her dead husband, basically. We know that this was what happened with other people in the histories. For example, the first queen mentioned the Lydian queen who was married to Candouglas. So we don't really have many personal details about her except this story and we enter it basically as she becomes important for Cyrus' fate. 
Absolutely. And it's also very interesting how this ancient culture it did have these queens who were able to rule in their own right, as it were, following the death of the king. But let's go on to Cyrus, because you did mention him just there. Mm -hmm. So he is Cyrus the Great. He is the founder of the Persian Empire just before this story begins. He's embarked on a lot of conquests and a lot of successful conquests. Yes, this is indeed true. So basically, Herodotus tells us his whole story in book one. We hear about Cyrus's origins up until his death, which is what we're going to talk about now. Big spoiler alert there. <laughs> but yeah, so we have a full, complete narrative of Cyrus' life and his great deeds, his great conquests, his ingenious use of, for example, a, a camel corps to conquer Lydia. He conquers Babylon. So he has some pretty big conquests behind him before he engages with the Masquetan enemy. I should say that when we encounter Tamiris, we're probably around the year 530 BC. So it's really a moment in time that defines Tamiris's legacy and also, of course, Cyrus's fate. So he's done all these conquests. You mentioned Lydia, Babylon just there over many years of ruling. Mm -hmm. Why does he now turn his attention to these beautifully adorned armor-clad horse warriors with their battle axes and their bows on the steps of perhaps Turkmenistan? Why does he turn his attention to the Masagitai? Yeah, this is also quite a good question. We don't really know for sure. Herodotus says that they were simply just the obvious next target. But if you look at the map, Cyrus has just conquered Babylon, and he's miles and miles away from these Masagetans. So there's no obvious connection between the two. People believe, though, that, and this is modern scholars, and they believe that the Masagetans or the Scythians or whatever, some tribes were raiding the periphery of the Persian Empire, and therefore Cyrus had to respond to this threat from the outside. But Herodotus, he does not remark on this at all. For Herodotus, it's simply because Cyrus is looking for more land to conquer and that these people, the Masquetans, they simply had the largest territory and therefore he engaged them instead of somebody else. Is this one of the first initial signs that we can see when looking at Herodotus's narrative, really trying to analyse it and sorting the fact from the fiction that I'm sure no doubt there'll be more and more of as Herodotus's story progresses? Yes, this is exactly it, sort of internal inconsistencies that we can focus on and say, oh, what's going on here? Very interesting also because Herodotus is basically going into the head of Cyrus and thinking for him and trying to figure out what his motives are. So continuing with Herodotus' story, what does Cyrus do to prepare for his conquest against these Masagetans? He doesn't actually prepare anything for the conquest. He launches an immediate attack on the Masagetans, which is basically a marriage proposal. So he tells Tamiris via messenger that he simply wants to marry her and in that way take over her territory. So in the first instance, he thinks that he can simply become king by marrying her. And Tamiris, of course, understands this and refuses his initial advances. Once this is out of the way, so to speak, Cyrus does indeed prepare for war by building a bridge across the Araxes River. And then because Tamiris can see that he's advancing, Tamiris gives him some options of whether to fight in her territory or in his territory. That's very nice of her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so she gives Cyrus these very nice options of where they want to fight. How does Cyrus initially respond? 
he doesn't know really how to respond. I don't think many of his enemies have done something similar, but he does what is customary to do and what most people do in the histories uh, themselves is to call a war council. And the war council of the Persians basically advise him to say, well, fight in your own territory. You know, you have the home field advantage. But who objects? <laughs> well, you anticipate me there. Because, of course, one of the counsellors, one of the advisors, does not agree. And he, the former monarch of Lydia, King Croesus, he argues that Cyrus should simply attack in Tomyris's lands simply because in case Cyrus falls, the Mesgetans won't go on to invade the rest of Persia if they fight in Tomyris's territory. And also he makes the argument that Cyrus should not concede the initiative to a woman and retreat before her. That would not be his advice. Croesus, he seems to be this extraordinary figure in antiquity. You mentioned he was the king of Lydia, wasn't he? And he seems to have this quite an important place in Herodotus's narrative. But it's interesting now, even after he's been defeated by Cyrus and he's serving as an underling of Cyrus at his court as an advisor, he is still playing a very significant role in Cyrus's life. Yes, that's exactly what is happening. And, and this is a very, very important point and a very, very important relationship, this relationship between the king and his wise advisor. And as you already mentioned, Croesus has an enormous symbolic significance and he has suffered much else through Herodotus's narrative. He has experienced the reversal of fortune that Cyrus is about to encounter and Croesus, he will of course witness this again when he comes to advise Cyrus's son Cambyses. And I should note here just a brief note about historiography and that is of course that Herodotus is quite fond of these recurring motifs throughout his history showing that history does indeed repeat itself. And as a historian, he is also interested in the origin and causation of events because he actually talks about Croesus in a way where he's saying that Croesus, he was the first aggressor against the Greeks, an arrogant king who upset the Greek gods at Delphi. And this unfavorable portrayal of his royal arrogance is basically projected onto the Persian rulers like Cyrus because they are associated with this king Croesus. And therefore, when Croesus persuades Cyrus to attack this foreign land, we are meant to see or think that this particular conflict anticipates the wars that the Persian monarchs will fight with other lands, such as Egypt and with Greece. Of course, Greece is the last one in line. Croesus' cruel fate and the subsequent choices of the Persian monarchs, they set them on this imperialistic path that leads to ruin. And it's worth keeping these thematic parallel in mind because they help us to appreciate the histories as a literary work, but also as a source of information about the past. So Croesus is doing quite a lot here, <laughs> just the mention of him. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, having the name Croesus as well must carry a lot of influence with it in his histories because he's a name that quite a lot of people who look at ancient history will know because of the stories surrounding him. Yes. And so Cyrus, he takes Croesus's advice. Mm -hmm. and he crosses the river yes. into Masagetai territory, what happens next? Well, perhaps I should say that Croesus actually does give Cyrus a piece of advice on what to actually do. He gives him a stratagem that he should follow. And that's the second thing that happens, but it's quite important. 
because this stratagem exploits the wild or savage nature of the Masquitans. The Persians basically are advised to set up a camp with an excessive feast, and the Masquitans then will be lured into this trap because they have never experienced opulence and wine before. And then the Persians will basically strike at that point. So Croesus advice, and that's one of the things that will happen. But the first thing that actually happens after this war council is that Cyrus has a dream, because this is one of the things that often happens when you cross a natural boundary into enemy territory, a supernatural occurrence happens. Cyrus, he sees Darius, the son of one of Cyrus's noblemen, and this image basically spreads a pair of wings over Europe and over Asia. And so upon awakening, Cyrus, he believes that Darius is plotting against him to take the throne because obviously Cyrus thinks that he is ruling over Europe and Asia. But what he does is that he sends Darius's father, his Thespis, to look after or to keep an eye on Darius at the court. Darius is about 20 years old or something like that at this time. But as with many dreams in the histories, the interpreter is, of course, wrong. Cyrus is wrong. The dream indicates that Cyrus would die in the impending invasion and that Darius would assume the throne eventually. And so, of course, like most mortals, he's blind to the divine revelation which is before him. And this is, of course, a great irony because... Herodotus begins the whole digression on the Matagetans by saying that Cyrus will eventually lose. So it's as if this campaign against the Matagetans, Cyrus has been winning all these victories beforehand, but this is the one which will sound his undoing from what the dream says. Yeah, precisely. But of course, we know this. Cyrus doesn't know, so he goes ahead with the plan. I should also say here that, of course, the parallel to Croesus is also quite clear for people who have read the first book of the histories, because history basically repeats itself. Croesus had also thought that he would basically win in his war against Cyrus. He had asked the oracles, and the oracles had said that if Croesus would go into war, a great empire would fall. And Croesus misinterprets this again. And it's his own empire that falls, not Cyrus's, at that point anyway. So we are meant to think about this while we read about Cyrus's fall. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'd like to quickly stick on a bit about the, the savagery of the Masquitans, which you mentioned earlier, and that whole plan to get them to isolate a part of the Masquitan band by all this luxurious food and drink from the wagons and all that. We get quite a lot in Herodotus and this idea that the Greeks were the civilised people and the Persians are the barbarians, but it sounds quite here in the Cyrus versus the Masquitans that Herodotus is portraying Cyrus and the Persians as more civilised and the Masquitans as this barbarous nation who knew nothing about the luxuries and the joys of what they would call civilization. Yeah, there's a sort of a differentiation between these Asian cultures, and it's quite clear that some of them were capable of great things like building cities and organizing in societies and so on, and that other tribes, they do things differently. So it is a kind of a reversal of the stereotype, but basically within Herodotus' narrative, there are lots of different peoples, and some of them are more or less civilized. So it's not at all strange here. What is kind of strange about this initial stratagem that is being proposed is that it's basically a Trojan horse, isn't it? They are offered these gifts of wine and food, and they go and they feast upon this. And then when they are all lulled into a false sense of security, the Persians strike. So there's also something going on there. And it's quite interesting to see previous literature, Homer, the Iliad, rearing its head in Herodotus's narrative. So there's some literary interaction there. And how does this Trojan horse plan, how does it proceed? Well, of course, it always goes well. A stratagem can work just fine. One third of the Masagetan army is defeated. Herodotus is quite specific about that. And the leader of the army is taken captive. And this is quite a weird thing, just thinking about the inconsistencies in Herodotus as well, because we actually hear that the leader of the army, the general, is Tamaios' son. So here we have a son who is suddenly introduced to us, but who is apparently old enough to drink wine and is old enough to lead an army. So we may wonder, why is he not ruling? Why is Tamiris ruling? But there you go. She's still the reigning queen of the Masagetans. But anyway, the stratagem goes well, at least if you're a Persian. You can say that the main problem with it is, of course, it only takes out one third of the force because clearly the remaining force is quite strong. But it's only one third of the force. That's still quite a lot. And as you mentioned, it has Tamaris's son within its ranks. Yeah, it's really quite a significant force that is taken out here. And to capture Tamaris' son as well, I can imagine for Cyrus that would be, if the story is correct, <laughs> this would be a huge bargaining chip. How does Tamaris react? 
Actually, she reacts immediately. Somehow she just learns that the force has been destroyed and that her son has taken, uh, is taken captive. So she does what you normally do. She sends, again, a herald to Cyrus saying that he has tricked her and that he has tricked her son with all this feast and alcohol and so on. She demands the release of her son, who was clearly not defeated in a proper way. It was an unfair trick. And she also demands the departure of Cyrus's armies from her lands. If he doesn't agree to this, she says that she will satisfy his insatiable bloodlust. And she means this because she swears by the Masagetum god, the sun, basically. And so these are quite ominous things with what is to come. She basically promises him revenge if the sun is not released and if he does not depart. So does Cyrus, does he listen to Tamaris's warnings? Does he return her son? No. In fact, Herodotus states quite clearly that he basically ignores her warning. So she is completely overruled, even if she's just had this message delivered and Cyrus just ignores her. What is important here is, of course, that he doesn't have a plan for how he's going to defeat the rest of the Massagetans. So we don't really know what's going to happen here. And we can see this as a sort of his arrogance that he's basically like, OK, victory is basically secure. Everything is going to go fine from now on. And he is trusting in himself. Herodotus has already said that whenever Cyrus had waged war, he had encountered only nations who had proven incapable of resisting his conquest. So again, here we can see that He's trusting in his good fortune, which is a grave mistake for any commander in history. So we know what might happen with him soon. What does happen to Tamira's son, because of course he's quite interesting here, is that Tamira's son, I think he's called Spaka Pisis or something like this, he goes up to Cyrus once the effects of the wine had worn off and he basically requests release. He begs Cyrus to be released. And Cyrus, he oddly grants him this request. I mean, he has no reason to, but he does. And the son proceeds to commit suicide because he has discovered, we are told by Herodotus, he has discovered the terrible nature of his predicament. So we don't know what this could be, but it's probably from the dishonor of losing that large of a force, but it's probably also be just the manner in which he lost by being tricked and by all this shameful drinking as well. So... This is quite a terrible end to Tamiris' son. A terrible end, and it sounds like a point of no return, even though Cyrus has kind of ignored Tamaris' warning before, but it sounds like now a second battle is inevitable. Yes, indeed, because Tamiris seems to know what's happening in Cyrus' camp at all times. So yes, she, of course, learns about this, and then they engage in a great battle. In Herodotus' estimation, he says himself explicitly that this battle between Tyrus and Cyrus is the greatest battle, most violent battle fought among the barbarians. That's quite a title to give a battle in uh, Herodotus' history. This is not just any battle. This is one of the bloodiest that he's ever heard of. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that, what a great way to open his histories, isn't it? I mean, this is the end of book one of his histories, and it ends with this massive battle that is going to basically put into context all these future battles that the Persians will have with Egypt, and then with Scythia, and then with Greece. But we basically have the most massive one, at least the one fought among the non-Greeks, I should say, because it also anticipates that the Persians will fight against the Greeks is a significant battle in itself. 
Absolutely. It sounds not only climactic in the whole Massagetan campaign, but also climactic in the, all of the battles that Cyrus has fought through the book one narrative up to this point. This is the bigging up and up and up. <laughs> exactly. This is the climax, as it were. And what happens in it? So Herodotus does give us a, quite a, a good account of this battle. He basically states that the battle began with each side shooting arrows at each other while they were still far apart. And this is basically just like any ancient history war movie today, I'd say. But anyway, there you go. Then when the supply of arrows was exhausted, the two sides, they fall upon each other at close quarters. They fight with spears and with daggers. He says specifically, I don't know why the battle axes aren't there, but there you go. For a long time, the two sides, they fight fiercely. So they're evenly matched. Again, two thirds of the Massagetans are evenly matched with all the Persians. And neither side was willing to basically back down. At last, we hear that the Mesquitans prevail in this type of warfare. And a large part of the Persians, they die, including Cyrus. And then Herodotus tells us that Cyrus has reigned for 29 years. So this is a long reign coming to an end for the Persian monarch. And do we know anything more in detail about Cyrus's end in particular? So... Herodotus doesn't actually tell us, which kind of seemed a little bit strange. I mean, why does he deprive us of a single combat between Tamiris and, and Cyrus? But he does. And other sources for Cyrus's death, it also has Cyrus fight and dying in, a, in much more sort of glorious ways to go. But here we're told that Cyrus dies. What does happen to him is, of course, the main event, I should say, in the battle, because remember, Tamiris hasn't met Cyrus. They have only communicated via Herald. But she basically goes and locates him on the battlefield, again, indicating that they haven't fought each other in any personal way. But she basically sees him for the first time as he lies dead. And what she does is that she does something, again, very Homeric, is that she gloats over the body of Cyrus as he lies dead there. This is basically like Achilles gloating over the body of Hector in Iliad, book 22. And she does something that Achilles also does in a way to Hector, she basically defiles the corpse of Cyrus there on the battlefield. She doesn't drag it behind her chariot. She doesn't have a chariot. Presumably she has a horse, but we don't know. But she decapitates him and she puts this head in a wineskin filled with blood. And in this way, she says that Cyrus has finally satiated his bloodlust by being put in this container. So this is quite a graphic display of violence. And this most violent battle where a woman defeats a man on equal footing. Yeah, very graphic indeed. And also from <laughs> what you're mentioning, once again, these Homeric undertones, which seem to be there once again, alongside the possible Trojan horse tactic of earlier. Mm-hmm. And yeah, extraordinary story, an astonishing end to it and to the end of this great forger of the Persian Empire. But you mentioned earlier, this is not the only story we have from antiquity about Cyrus's death. Yeah, it's very important to just say that it ends with this graphic display. It ends with Tamiris and the bag with the head and everything. But Herodotus then says, and this is the last line of the whole story, is that I found this version the most credible version of all the stories about Cyrus's death. And in antiquity, as you mentioned, there are many other stories. And there are some stories that clearly engage with Herodotus's version, but also write something completely different. Perhaps the most famous one occurs in 
Xenophon's, Xenophon is also one of the Greek historians, he writes in the 4th century BC, and he writes the Syropaideia, which is basically a whole story about Cyrus, so basically a life of Cyrus. The Education of Cyrus, I should say, is a Greek title, but it ends with his death. And in that death scene, Cyrus basically dies in his bed at home as an old man in Babylon, giving his son Cambyses the actual succession, giving him the crown. There are also other excellent stories. I should just mention my favorite one, which is one of the historians that talk about Alexander the Great. But this historian also talks about Cyrus's death. And in that version, Cambyses, Cyrus' son, basically makes Cyrus so upset with one of the things that he has done in war that Cyrus's heart explodes. So there you go. There are clearly many versions to choose from, but Herodotus has given us quite an elaborate narrative. He has put Tomyris at the center of this. He's made her basically, we talked about Croesus as the wise advisor, but Tomyris is basically both the wise advisor of Cyrus. If he had just done what she had wanted, it would all have ended up much better. And yeah, she also can defeat him in war. She's basically more man than he is a man, as it were. And given all these different versions, but like the extraordinary nature of Herodotus's tale in particular, do we have any idea of how popular Herodotus's story of Cyrus's death of Tamaris was in antiquity? Yes, we have quite a good indication of this. And I would say that this is probably the most popular story that there was of Cyrus's end. It basically beat out all the other versions. And we can see this from other Greek sources from the Roman period, Latin sources, Latin writings, and so on. They really agreed that this version was the most historical one, despite all these literary parallels that we've talked about. I should say that since people started agreeing with Herodotus, and since this is all of classical literature, basically, People later on, so in the Middle Ages and then in the Renaissance, they began to agree with this version as well and basically promoted Tomyris in, for example, Renaissance literature. So Giovanni Boccaccio includes Tomyris in his catalogue of excellent women. She's one of the nine worthies in France, which is basically a catalogue of nine great women who match the nine great men of antiquity and Christianity. So yes, yeah, she really has sort of a rich reception in both the ancient period, the medieval period, the Renaissance. And I should also say that she also has quite a great reputation today. And this is quite a recent thing, actually. You could consider her the definition of a history hit because there's basically a heavy metal track about her by this band called The Sound of Thunder. They have made a song basically going through this Herodotus story. There's a movie from 2019, basically a big Kazakhstan production, where they speak old Persian and Iranian languages and where Tamiris is featured. It's just called Tamiris, basically. So she has a sort of a long history of reception from the ancient world to ours. I'm going to take a quick tangent on that heavy metal music example you mentioned just there, because that's interesting. And I know you've done work on this before. Uh, some very interesting work on this, because it sounds like there are certain figures in antiquity, like Tamaris, like Alexander the Great, who are mentioned in some heavy metal music songs. Yes, this is true. There's actually quite a huge catalogue of songs that deal with ancient history. And there was a book out about classical history, ancient history, and heavy metal music, which basically argues that there's so much of it that you could teach a course in ancient world just from heavy metal music or you can at least illustrate 
every single war event with a heavy metal track. So, I mean, there's a huge discography out there to explore for people who are interested in that, just like there are films and there are even operas about Tamiris. So, I mean, there's a lot to choose from if you're interested in the topic. That's amazing. Her lifespan seems to span much further originating in Herodotus. Mm-hmm. She has become this figure who's emerged in later writings, in ancient writings, in Roman poetry. I'd like to ask about that in a moment. Mm-hmm. It's in medieval times, Renaissance times, even modern day with rock music and opera. I mean, her longevity is amazing. Yeah, it is quite amazing. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I think that illustrates how important this ability we have to tell each other stories about people, how really powerful they are and what we talk about and what we think about these, even if they're just fictions or whatever, they can really make a difference for people and our thought worlds. So I guess that's one of the reasons why it's so important to study the ancient world and study the classics is that these things are really things to think with in a modern day setting. Absolutely. It's very striking the story as well, which I guess can also add to its longevity, isn't it? One that has all these undertones as well, which are attractive to an audience. But I would like to talk about Roman poetry, if I may, just quickly. What examples do we have of Tamiris and the death of Cyrus being mentioned in Roman times? Well, there's quite a lot of it, actually, because she becomes important as a character who is catalogued with other powerful queens who fought well. So we have lots of catalogues of these powerful women, people like Semiramis of Assyria, Cleopatra of Egypt, Zenobia, the ruler of Palmyra, and then Tamiris, of course. And they are they're basically a group that people fought with in Rome, and they thought about these deeds that they did. And so they feature all across Roman literature. So for example, Popertius has a catalogue of women in one of his elegies, this, this Roman poet in which these great queens, they are discussed, I should say, not in an incredibly flattering way, but they are at least there. And lots of other Roman literature talk about these women as a sort of examples of how to not behave necessarily, but to showcase a certain virtue. So for example, Tomiris, because she is the ultimate avenger, basically, she avenges her son and so on. She is represented as a this is how you conduct a good revenge on somebody if they take something from you. Of course, you shouldn't do it exactly like Tomiris did, but you should at least be aware that this is something that you can think about. Do you think it's that idea that she is the ultimate avenger and how far she goes to avenge the death of her son that because she goes so far and the tale is so, I dare say unique, but you get an idea of what I'm meaning by that. Is that another reason why it's so popular through time? Because people just remember it because of how far she goes to avenge the death of her son. Yeah, I must say also the the outstanding image of Tomiris with the bag or putting the, the head in the bag is really quite a capturing motif because it sort of retells the whole story by that action alone. Here you see the revenge consummated, basically. This is the end, as it were. And yeah, so that's a really striking image. And of course, this is what people focus on all through history. I should probably also say that the story is, of course, so captivating that some people believe and have believed basically since the Middle Ages that 
Tamir is, is basically the figure behind the story of Judith in the Old Testament, who also cuts the head off one of the Assyrian generals. So this motif of women taking revenge, rightful revenge on men, is quite stunning. Not just because of what has happened to the women, because other things happened to Judith. She wants to preserve Israel and so on. But basically, this theme of revenge is really quite important for different reasons. I should say that, of course, it's really in the local context of Herodotus, there's really quite a lot going on. Because, first of all, by making Cyrus drink blood, Tomyris takes revenge for his bloodthirst. And by quenching this thirst, she takes revenge for the faith of her son, whose innocence is, of course, quite clear because he had not drunk wine before. And Tomyris then, for Herodotus, becomes sort of an instrument of the heavens or whatever, punishing Cyrus for this intemperance because he was not satisfied with what he had. He had decided to conquer more land and simply also for believing himself immortal. So here we are shown, not just by Tomyris' revenge, but all these other things that have been going on in Herodotus' narrative, we are shown that Cyrus is not a god. He's a man who, like all men, is born from a woman and who, like all men, is mortal, not immortal. There you go. It's the end of Herodotus' big chapter on Cyrus at the beginning of his history. It's a very interesting way to end. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine this scene of her dipping the head in blood and all that satiating Cyrus's bloodlust. Mm-hmm. It's a scene that we see quite regularly used by painters in history as art pieces. Definitely. This is the most famous motif. You can just Google it very, very quickly and find hundreds of these images. I went to a museum not long ago in the Copenhagen, and I saw three of these images hanging in the National Museum in Copenhagen just after Christmas, when it was still possible to go elsewhere. I went to Belgium, a museum again. I saw at least two versions of this motif. And you simply can't say whether it's Judith or it's Tamiris on there. So it's really something that has impressed itself upon our imagination through time. Absolutely. Truth or not, this story, as you said, has survived for centuries through so many different mediums. Mm -hmm. Christian, your current work is on the subject of Tamiris. Yes, she's definitely a, a huge part of it. I should say that My basic role here at Aarhus University is that I'm an ancient historian and I'm very interested in these great literary traditions of great rulers in antiquity. So, of course, my work is not just on Tamiris, but also on Cyrus, uh, Alexander the Great, Semiramis and these people. And I'm so lucky to be sponsored by the great Danish Carlsberg Foundation to conduct research into these figures as literary traditional antiquity so as you can hear there's quite a lot to get to work with here absolutely well it's going to keep you busy best of luck with all of that christian and once again it's great to speak to you yeah thank you so much tristan thanks for having me on the show bye for now the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.